you. Give them love, guys. It's so good to be with you here this morning, and uh, I do bring you greetings from Harvest Bible Church in uh, Westland. We uh, love you guys, pray for you often as a, as a staff and as a pastoral team, and I appreciate so much the ministry that's going on here. If you need a copy of the Word of God, I'm going to have you open up to Acts chapter 1, and uh, the brother in the back has uh, some Bibles for you. Uh, if uh, you need one, just lift your hand, and uh, he'll find you and get you a copy of the Word of God. But uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 1 today. As uh, Pastor Eric mentioned, we've uh, connected with uh, Mac Avenue for about a couple years here. Appreciate uh, these guys as we were able to uh, have some breakfast with them a couple years ago and and hear more about their heart uh, for the city of Detroit and and, uh, doing mission in the city. And uh, we were fired up. We were encouraged about that. And we were glad to jump into a partnership, a relationship with with the pastoral team here. And we've been able to get together with Eric and Eric and Leon on a couple of occasions and and, uh, pray and just encourage one another, fellowship in the Lord, and uh, been glad to to be a part in what's going on here. So I uh, hope you're encouraged that there are many, and I know you know this, but there are many churches uh, around the state and even around the country that pray for you guys and that appreciate what's happening here. So hope that's an encouragement and a blessing to you. I appreciate also the way the gospel uh, overcomes and breaks down even some of the most difficult barriers. It wasn't until I had begun fellowshipping with your three pastors that I realized that we had some very serious uh, theological differences. Um, I realized that a couple of these guys uh, were Michigan State guys, and uh, I realized that another one was an Ohio State guy, and I'm a lifelong University of Michigan fan. I'm wearing my Michigan blue today, all right? I'm representing. And I appreciate the way that the gospel broke down those man-made barriers and allowed for some good fellowship and unity as brothers in the gospel. And so, glad to be here today, and I trust that uh, the Word will be an encouragement to you this morning. Uh, You're in Acts chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 770. In the large print Bible, it's 1691. Uh, Before I get into that, I also want to introduce my wife, Bethany, who's here today. Uh, We've been married for about uh, two and a half years, and she continues to be a great gift and a blessing from the Lord. A few decades ago, a British writer named Malcolm Muggeridge wrote this about the person of Jesus Christ. We look back on history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and wealth dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. He says, in one lifetime, I have seen my own fellow English countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world. I've heard a crazy, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. I've heard an Italian clown announce that he would restart the calendar to begin his own assumption of power. I've heard a murderous Soviet brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon. I've seen America wealthier and, in terms of weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together. Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one little lifetime. And now, all gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead, remembered only in infamy. 
Stalin, a forbidden name, even in the regime that he once helped found. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep her motorways running. All in one lifetime. All gone. Gone with the wind. But behind the debris of these self-styled, sullen supermen, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have hope. The person of Jesus Christ. Amen? The person of Jesus Christ stands tall over all empires, all rulers of the world throughout all history. Jesus Christ remains above all and is the one through whom we can have hope. And I so appreciate the fact that you all have done a study this entire summer focusing on the person, the life, the work of Jesus Christ. And you've considered, of course, the pre-existence and deity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the offices of Christ. And now today, of course, we come to the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ, which was the culmination of his life here on earth. There are many great things that happened through the life and ministry of Jesus, but the culmination of all that was his ascension back up to heaven from where he came. We can see this actually in one of the earliest confessions of faith from the early church found in 1 Timothy 3.16. We'll put this up here on the screen for you. But this early confession of the church, some people think this might have even been a hymn that the early church sang. But it talks about the life and ministry of Jesus. He appeared in a body. That's the incarnation. That's him coming to earth as a man, the God-man. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and then his ascension. He was taken up in glory to culminate all those events. Now, the most full description we have of Jesus' ascension is found in Acts chapter 1, and I've had you turn there this morning, and we'll begin considering this passage in verse 8. Acts chapter 1, in verse 8. Jesus, speaking to his disciples and the others that were gathered there on the mountain, gives them the great commission. I know you're familiar with these words. I know you're familiar with this commissioning that Jesus gave his people just before he left earth. And he tells them in verse 8, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, pause there for a moment. I mean, this isn't just some simple task. This isn't like when your wife asks you to run down to the store and pick up a half gallon of milk. This is quite a task here that Jesus gives his people. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I know you all here know how challenging mission is, how challenging it is to take the name and gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are around you in this end of the earth. These, these, these men and women listening to these words of Jesus, this was a serious thing. This is something that would cost these guys their lives. This is something that they would have to leave everything for and commit themselves to for the rest of their life despite some severe hardship that would come. But Jesus doesn't just give them this commission, this command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now he will give them a glorious demonstration that would give them courage, even as they took his name to the ends of the world. Verse 9, right after he said this, 
He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is the Shekinah cloud that surrounds the glory of God, a a glorious manifestation of Jesus in glory being taken back up to heaven. And I want you to notice this is something that they all saw with their very eyes. This wasn't something that one of the disciples just hallucinated or dreamed up. This is something that the whole crowd gathered there could see. A display of God's, of Jesus' glory being taken back up to heaven from where he came. And so, verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Whoa! I mean, imagine how you would feel. And remember, this is before the area, the era of airplanes and helicopters and jetpacks. I guess we're still a little bit before the era of jetpacks, unfortunately. I'm looking forward to hopefully owning one of those one day. But no one had seen anyone actually take off from off the ground and start floating away into heaven. You can imagine if we're just gathered here today and all of a sudden one of, one of the members here in the body just starts floating up toward the ceiling and you're all sitting there, what are you going to do? Look intently what's going on. But you can imagine the feelings and the thoughts even that are going through the disciples' minds as they are watching their precious Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, just float away from them. I mean, give me some feedback here just for a moment. What are some of the feelings or some of the thoughts that you can imagine the disciples gathered there would have had as they watched Jesus Christ ascending away from them into heaven? What are some of the thoughts and the feelings that they would have had? Sadness. Yeah. Dear friend was leaving them. What else would they have been thinking or feeling? Some fear. Absolutely. What are we going to do? We're supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and now he's leaving us? Sure. What are some other feelings that they might have had or some thoughts? Some confusion. Yeah. What's going on here? Right before he left, they said, hey, is your kingdom going to be restored now? This is this is the time when you start to rule physically here on earth, right? And oh, you're leaving. What? What, what's, what are some of the other things they would have thought or felt? Maybe some doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Some resentment. Sure. Yeah, you're, you're leaving us to do all this work and then you're, you're taking off? What's, what's, what's up with that? What else? Some awe, certainly. Yeah, you can imagine all these thoughts and all these feelings going through their mind as they look intently up into heaven as Jesus has just disappeared into a cloud of glory. But God in his kindness immediately sends an explanation. Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Of course, these were heavenly angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. He'll return on a cloud of glory. He's coming back to you. It'll be all right. He's not leaving you forever. We got things under control here. This would have been an encouragement to these men. And so the ascension of Jesus Christ, you've seen uh, the story there. But what we want to consider this morning is what is the significance of the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ to his father's right hand? What's the significance of all this? What does this mean for us? And let me warn you, we're going to have to do some jumping around in the New Testament. And, and the reason why is that the significance of Jesus resurrection or I'm sorry, ascension and exaltation is found all throughout the New Testament. This was a major theme of the apostles. Apostles preaching and teaching and writing. And the first place I want you to to look with me is Acts chapter 5. You want to turn there. I've got the verse here on the screen for you. 
But in one of the first sermons in the early church was preached by the Apostle Peter, and he explained exactly why Jesus was exalted to heaven. Even as I was looking through all the biblical data on this this week, I'm like, man, how do I categorize this? Make this simple. I'm I'm the kind of guy who likes to be organized, structured, have some categories for things. And I'm like, okay, how do I how do I put all this together? And and Peter did me such a favor here in Acts chapter five. He put it all together for me. He really broke it down into the most simple reason why Jesus was exalted. Look at this verse, Acts 531. Peter says, God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Prince there being the idea of a leader or a ruler and savior, of course, we know what that means. And so I don't have to wonder why Jesus ascended and was exalted to the Father's right hand. Peter told me he was exalted as a ruler and he is exalted as savior. And those are the two areas we want to consider together from the word this morning. First, that Jesus is exalted as ruler. Amen? Jesus is exalted as ruler. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Great statement of this truth. If you're using a church Bible, the page is 827. Large print, the page is 1818. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll consider from these verses how Jesus has been exalted as ruler over all things. Ephesians 1, look with me at the end of verse 19. Paul references the working of God's mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and then, here's his exaltation, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I love the phrase there in those verses that Jesus is exalted far above every title that can be given. You think about the titles that are dished around for different humans that supposedly have some importance. Jesus is exalted above all of those titles, above every doctor, above every general, Exalted above every admiral, every governor, every president, every prime minister, every prince, every monarch, every king, every emperor, every potentate. Jesus is exalted far above them all. You can't think of a human title on this world that comes close to matching Jesus' rule in the heavenly places. He is king of all human kings. He is Lord of all human lords. He is the name above every name. We see this in another great passage on the exaltation of Christ. I won't have you turn there, but it'll be on the screen here for you. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Just after speaking of of the humiliation of Christ, the humility of Christ to come in the fashion of a man, the fashion of a servant, and to die the worst death imaginable, therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That pretty much covers all the bases, right? 
every place, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he's exalted not only over all men and women, but he's also exalted over angelic and demonic powers. We see this in our next verse here on the screen, 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers, all of them in submission to him. You think about the power that God and his sovereignty has given to these angelic and even demonic creatures and allowed them to have. They all bow before the exalted throne of Jesus Christ. Let me quote you something from R.C. Sproul. He said, in the ascension, Jesus went up to his crowning. He didn't go up simply to enter into his rest. He ascended to the throne, to the right hand of God, where he was given dominion, power, and authority over the whole earth. The lamb who was slain became the lion of Judah, who reigns over everything. And I want us to know a couple of things about Jesus being exalted as ruler. I want us to see and make it real clear in our minds that he reigns in great glory. He reigns in great glory. Glory. We see this in Hebrews 2, verse 9. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, speaking of him coming to earth as a man. But now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is crowned with glory. He is crowned with honor. He is dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair are white like wool, white as snow, signifying his purity and his holiness. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet like fine bronze. His voice is like the sound of cascading waters. His face shines like the sun as midday. He receives the worship of men and angels in heaven right now at the throne of God. Light shines all around him. He sits at the glorious right hand of God. He is crowned with glory and honor. This is an encouragement to us, isn't it? To know that Jesus is crowned in glory and honor right now, even when we go through some difficult stuff for him on mission. The very first Christian martyr was named Stephen. I've got a verse here from Acts chapter 7. Right before Stephen was stoned to death for the faithful testimony of the gospel, he saw, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God in glory. Can you imagine what an encouragement this was for this faithful servant of God about to meet his death at the hands of angry men? What an encouragement to us as well. Jesus now in great glory is enjoying fellowship with his Father. He's in God's presence, enjoying the relationship that began in eternity past. I don't know if you've thought about this very often. I don't think it's something that Christians in general think about very much. But have you ever considered the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all the way back in eternity past, far before the worlds were ever formed? Perfect love. Perfect fellowship, perfect joy among the members of the Trinity. And now Jesus is ascended and exalted back into that joy that he had with his Father from eternity past. I want us to see this for ourselves. Don't just take my word for it. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is page 766, or if you have a large print, page 1679. 
John chapter 17 and look at verse 5 with me. Jesus praying with his father just a short time before he was to go to the cross says, John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That glory of exaltation, honor, joy, fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. And Jesus, can you imagine how enjoying that for all of eternity and then coming to the world as a man? And suffering the degradation that he suffered the whole way forward. He had joy set before him. He was going back to his father. He was going back to that place of fellowship with God. And this drove him, this propelled him through his mission, even through the most difficult places. And so Jesus reigns in glory. And you know what? You know what the best part of heaven is going to be? It's going to be just beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've really considered this before, but human beings were created to appreciate glorious things that have nothing to do with us. Think about how many Twitter followers LeBron James has. Or how many Facebook followers he has on his page. LeBron James hasn't done a thing for me except display great basketball. Or if you prefer Kobe. But Kobe, I know LeBron James is kind of a touchy subject in some places. So, okay, LeBron James, whatever. Or Kobe, whatever your, your hero is. Okay, Kobe, that's not so good. Okay, someone, some great athlete that you consider, right? You, you sit there in your den, guys, right? And you, and, and you watch these games and you just watch these athletes do things that only a few people in the world can do. And it doesn't give you anything except pure joy, at watching a glorious display of talent. Well, those of you who are into sports, into athletics, maybe you're even watching the Olympics this week, the joy that you experience when you behold a great athletic accomplishment is just a hint of the joy that you will experience when you see Jesus in all his glory. Those of you who perhaps are, are into movies and TV shows and you appreciate a great display of acting, the joy that you experience when you see a great acting performance is just a hint of the joy that you will experience when you behold Jesus in all his glory. Those of you who are into music, the joy that you experience when you hear someone sing a beautiful song or play perfectly on an instrument, the joy that you feel in those moments is just a hint of the joy that you will experience when you behold Jesus in his glory. Those of you who may be into fashion or design, the joy that you experience when you see a, a set of clothing that's just perfectly fashioned. I don't even know how to say it because I'm not really into that. But the joy that you experience or the joy that you experience if you're into design and you're an HGTV person like my wife and you see an interior just perfectly immaculately designed with the great, most beautiful blend of colors and combinations. And the joy that you experience beholding that is just a hint of the joy that you will experience experience when you see Jesus face to face exalted in all his glory. Friends, that's the best part of heaven. That's the best part of heaven. We were created to enjoy beholding glory and one day we will see Jesus in all his glory. Jesus reigns in great glory, but I want us to see in particular in this day and age he reigns as head 
of the church. Well, he reigns over all things, but particularly in this day and age, he reigns over the church. We saw this earlier in Ephesians 1, and we see this again in Colossians 1.18. We'll have this up on the screen here for you. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Really, in the simplest terms, you know, people have debates about church government, but in the simplest terms... The church is a monarchy, and Jesus is king. He calls the shots. And I wonder if this is sometimes difficult, especially for American minds, to comprehend. Years ago, I I worked as a teacher at a small Christian school up in Lake Orion. And, uh, in fact, I see Kristen back here. Kristen and I actually went to church years ago and uh, enjoyed fellowship there, appreciate her, her family. But uh, I taught at a small Christian school there in Lake Orion, and um, I, one of my responsibilities, because I was the low guy on the totem pole, was I had to teach the sixth grade boys P.E. class. Now, if you know anything about sixth graders, um, they know everything about the world and the way it works and what is best, okay? They know far more than every adult in their life, okay? That's, that's what it's like to teach sixth graders. And so I was teaching their PE class, and I'm trying to mix it up with some different activities, teach them some different sports, teach them some different exercises. That's what physical education is all about, learning some different ways to have fun and recreate and stay in shape. And uh, so we, we'd play basketball, we'd play soccer, we'd play kickball, we'd play dodgeball, we'd do running, we'd do longer runs, we'd do shorter sprints, we'd do hurdles. And I'm just trying to mix it up and teach these guys some different ways to stay in shape. But the sixth grade boys weren't a big fan of the running. They weren't even a big fan of the soccer. I can't comprehend that. They weren't even a huge fan of the basketball. The only sport that they wanted to play every single day was dodgeball, right? Amen. Do I have a witness here? Dodgeball is the one sport they they wanted to play. I think there was something cathartic about being able to hurl an object at their classmate's head after a week of frustration sitting next to them, okay? Something about that. But the sixth grade boys wanted to play dodgeball. At least the bigger ones did. The smaller ones were like, please, can we run, please? Because they were doing plenty of running and dodgeball, trying to yeah, so, so that's all they wanted to play. And I'm trying to reason with sixth grade boys who are just before the age of being able to understand reason. So that wasn't smart. But um, and, and I, I jest here. I love sixth grade boys. Okay, they're, they're great. Their kids are great. They can learn. But it was a little frustrating in PE class. And I'm sorry that's coming out a little bit, maybe a little sinfully. So, so every single day, Mr. Moses, are we playing dodgeball? Mr. Moses, are we playing dodgeball? I'm like, we just played dodgeball yesterday. No, we want to play it again. And I remember one of one of these guys, I remember very distinctly the way that he tried to reason with me. He said, well, Mr. Moses, we live in America and America is a democracy. We all get to vote on what happens. And so what we should do is because we're in America, P.E. class should be a democracy. Every day you should have us vote and tell you what sport the majority of us want to play. And so I gladly came back to my dear sixth grade friend and told him, number one, you got to be 18 years old to vote. Amen. Amen. And number two, America may be a democracy, but P.E. class is a monarchy and I am king. I am king of this class and I decide what you all do. All right. I wonder, though, if sometimes as as American Christians, we we tend to slide into this mindset, though, a little bit. Right. I I, I want Burger King, have it my way. 
I want church to be my way. I, I should at least have some input on how this goes, right, Jesus? But the church doesn't work that way. Jesus reigns over the church. He calls the shots. He sets the directions. He decides what is wisest in terms of our church philosophy and events. Jesus rules over the church. You say, well, Mike, if he was so interested in ruling over the church, why did he leave? Well, he had a plan for this. Jesus rules over the church, but he does it through the mediation and the guidance of his Holy Spirit. And this is something I hope all of us who are part of the church, part of the body of Christ, appreciate this good gift of Jesus Christ in sending the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn just a page back in your Bibles. You were in John 17. Turn back to John 16, where Jesus is explaining to his disciples what's, what's happening, that he's going to be going away. And he acknowledges that there is some sadness at this. But in John 16, verse 7, Jesus tells them, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Oh, you're going to be sad, you're going to be fearful, you're going to doubt a little bit, you'll be a little confused, but this is actually for your good. It's for your advantage. It's for your benefit, for your joy. Why? Because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. The counselor is simply a title for the Holy Spirit of God. But, Jesus says, if I go, I will send him to you. And sure enough, just days after his ascension, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to begin the church. We read of this in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. These verses should be up here on the screen for you. Peter explains what's going on there on the day of Pentecost at the start of the church. Why are these people all hearing the gospel in their own language? Why are all these people believing this message about this guy who died? Well, it's because the Spirit's been poured out to begin his church. Peter explains God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, that's his ascension, right? He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. You know, it is easy to wish that Jesus had just stayed around on earth, isn't it? It seems like if Jesus was just hanging out in Jerusalem, it'd be great to just shoot him an email or give him a call when we got a question about the church, right? I mean, I don't know if any of you are sinful enough to admit this, but I know I feel that way at times as, as a leader in the church. I know your pastors here think, that, man, when we come up to a difficult question or a point of confusion or a dispute or a debate, man, why, I wish we could just phone up Jesus and be like, hey, can you take care of this thing? Can we get an answer here? It's easy to think that way. However, however, I want us to, to consider what a precious gift it is that we have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding the church. Consider what a great gift this is. For one, the Spirit is everywhere at all times. Every church, every believer, He indwells us all and assures us of our salvation. The Spirit has given us the perfect and profitable Word of God. The Spirit guides and builds every true local church. The Spirit is the one who changes hearts and opens eyes to see Jesus and believe the gospel. The Spirit is the one who brings diverse believers from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of barriers, and He brings them together in unity around the person of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the one who is with us on mission, giving us courage to proclaim the gospel. The Spirit is the one who is with us in the midst of the temptation and opposition of this world, giving us strength to overcome the world and grow in grace. Yeah, it'd, it'd be nice to have Jesus here on earth. It'd be great. And hey, we look forward to the day he returns. Amen? Christians are the ones who love his appearing. But until then, praise God 
Thank God for the gift of the Spirit within us, directing and guiding the church on Jesus' behalf. Amen. And so Jesus is exalted in glory. He's exalted over the church and he's exalted over all men, all powers, all rulers and authorities. And, and it's so important for us to know that right now, right now, brother or sister in Christ, right now, Jesus is exalted in glory. Right now, right now. You know why we need to know this? When, when we're troubled by news of a deranged gunman who shoots up a movie theater, a dozen lives just snuffed out in a moment, it's good to know that Jesus is glorified and exalted over all. When we're troubled by political turmoil and we come yet again upon the stress and the strain of yet another election year and the signs and the debates and the controversy, it is a blessing to know that Jesus is glorified and exalted over all. Amen? When you are troubled by a friend's betrayal, a father's rejection, a daughter's unwise choice, it's important to know that Jesus is glorified and exalted over all. When you're troubled by news of a cancer diagnosis or a miscarriage or the death of a dear friend, it is a blessing to know in the midst of that grief that Jesus is glorified and exalted over all. When you're troubled by increasing examples of society rejecting God and heading down the path of rebellion, it's so important to know that Jesus is glorified and exalted over all. You say, Brother Mike, if Jesus is glorified and exalted, why doesn't he just set things right now? Why didn't he just set things right right away? As soon as he ascended and was exalted to the, the right hand of the Father in glory, why didn't he just get rid of the trouble, get rid of the evil, get rid of the sin, make all, make all things new, perfectly new right away? Well, the, the reason is actually a glorious reason and it's good news. Jesus patiently endures the evil of this world so that millions of men, women, and children from all across the globe and right here in Metro Detroit would have time to repent and come under his lordship. Because Jesus is not only exalted as ruler, he is exalted as savior. Oh, Jesus is exalted as ruler. He's exalted in glory, but he is exalted to be the savior of sinners. The ascension and exaltation of Christ gives us hope for forgiveness and adoption into the family of God. And let me just give you a few examples of this. Jesus is exalted as savior, and this means his atoning work is complete. His atoning work is complete. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews toward the end of the Bible. If you're using a church Bible, the page number is 846. In large print, the page is 1862. But I want us to see that Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God means that his atoning work is complete. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The opening of Hebrews gives us many glorious truths about the Son, but this one in, in Hebrews 3 is precious and glorious. It says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why did he sit? The book of Hebrews says he sat because there wasn't anything else to do in our atonement. It was complete. It was finished. 
Turn a few pages ahead in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, just a little bit later in the book. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, and you'll see this truth emphasized a second time and elaborated on just a little bit. Speaking of Jesus Christ as our great high priest, it says, Hebrews 10, verse 12, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sits there in his ascension and exaltation because there is nothing more to do for our salvation. The sacrifice is complete. The debt has been paid in full. You say, Mike, that's good news. It is good news, but it gets better. Because not only is Jesus' atoning work complete, but right now at the Father's right hand, he intercedes for believers. That's our next point there on your outline. He intercedes for believers. That means that right now, day after day, as you continue to sin and offend a holy God, Jesus pleads with God the Father on your behalf. He intercedes for believers. And I want us to see I want you to see this for yourselves also in Hebrews, back in chapter seven. Turn just a page or two back to Hebrews chapter seven. Verse 25. Notice the reasoning of the writer of Hebrews as he explains again the significance of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. How? Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. Are we a needy people? Do we need some help, friends? Do we need a lot of help? We are a needy people spiritually. And a high priest like Jesus meets our need. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he always lives to intercede for us. And this is why, despite our sin, we can have confidence to talk to God the Father, the creator of the universe, the thrice holy God. We can talk to him in our prayers. How? Because Jesus is at his right hand interceding for us. Turn back just another page or two to Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll see some of the most precious verses in all of Scripture. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, once again a reference there to Jesus' ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And notice these precious, precious truths. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, the fact that Jesus is our high priest, there are two great truths connected with that. One truth connected with the fact that Jesus is our great high priest is that his atonement was a once-for-all perfect sacrifice, his own body on the cross. But the other great truth about Jesus as our high priest is that he continues to live and intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. Praise God for this. Praise God for this truth that Jesus is our great high priest. You know, it's really nice. (laughs) It's really nice to have friends in high places, isn't it? Isn't it? When it comes to being involved in certain organizations, certain events, it's really nice to have friends in high places places. I witnessed this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I actually were involved in taking a, a group of teenagers up to Bible camp a couple of weeks ago. We had a great time up at Bible camp in Wisconsin. 
great camp up there. We love that place. We love their ministry. But one of the things that was particularly nice for me is the fact that my brother Kevin is one of the assistant directors of the camp. It's worked out really well for me. Why? Because I could pick up my phone or, or, or text him and be like, hey, Kevin, what's up here? Can you set us up? And he's like, sure. It's one of the assistant directors. He can do whatever he wants. And so we're like, hey, make sure our teens have the best counselors. Make sure our teens are set up with, with the best things here and there. Make sure they have the best week imaginable. And he's like, all right, I'll do that for you. He was a friend in a high place, and it made for a really nice week for us. Well, well the good news, friends, is even if you don't have friends in high places, humanly speaking, you have the ultimate friend in a high place when we think about Jesus at God's right hand interceding for us. When Satan comes to accuse you before the Father, Jesus steps in and he's got our back. He pleads for us. If anybody sins, we have an advocate. One who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Earlier in the service, we sang the song, Before the Throne of God Above. This song was actually written almost 200 years ago, but the truths are just so good. They ring even to today. The the song was actually written based on the verses that we have just considered today in Hebrews. It was actually originally called The Advocate. And I want to read just again some of the lines from this song. Again, just rejoicing in this truth of Jesus at the Father's right hand interceding for us. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No accusation can pull my plea away from the throne of God. And so when Satan tempts me to despair... Anyone ever despaired over their sin a few times in their life? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt that really is within me, upward I look and see him there, my great high priest who made an end of all my sin. What a comfort. What a comfort. Jesus intercedes for believers. But finally this morning, Jesus, exalted as Savior, is preparing a place for his people. He's preparing a place for his people. What's going on up there in heaven? Jesus is preparing a place for you. I want you to turn with me to one final passage, John chapter 14. John 14, if you're using a church Bible, the page is 763, large print 1675. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Jesus, again, the context is him encouraging his disciples. Even as he's telling them, I'm about to go, he comforts them with this truth. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus tells his children, his people, his loved ones, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Well, one of the disciples was confused. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, right now, preparing a place for us.
You know, I don't know a lot of details about heaven. The Bible tells us some truths about heaven. There are a lot of things about heaven that we just don't know. I don't know what our day-to-day schedule is going to be. That's really hard for me because I'm, ask my wife, I'm a calendar guy. Okay, if it's not planned, it's probably not happening. <laughs> All right. I'd love to know a day by day list of activities in heaven and what's going on up there, but I just don't have a lot of those details. But you know what? The more I've come to grow in Christ and understand the beauty of Christ, the more I'm okay with that. Because as long as Jesus is there and as long as Jesus is preparing that place, I'm good with whatever's there. I had a, uh, a youth pastor back in the day who was uh, a fun guy to be around. He had just one of those magnetic personalities. And uh, people just loved hanging out with this guy. Just a goofball, just a fun guy to be around. Usually at the beginning of youth group time, we would start out with a game before we went to the songs and the, and, and, the, and the time in the Word. We would start with a game. And he actually came up with the most terrible games. They really were, were quite lame, to be honest with you. But he made the games fun just because he was there. I remember one game we were playing. Um, it was actually sort of a version of basketball. But instead of playing with a basketball, we were playing with a giant rubber chicken. And... Um, Right? Lame game, right? That's pretty lame. But it was hilarious because he was the referee. And so we're running around chasing this giant rubber chicken and throwing it to each other and trying to throw it at the backboard. And whenever people on opposing teams would start yanking at that giant rubber chicken, trying to get possession of the chicken, he would run in there and blow his whistle and say, jump chicken, jump chicken. And he'd throw it up in the air and we'd go running after the rubber chicken again. And it was just the goofiest thing. It was really a terrible game. But the fact that he was there... The fact that this guy, my youth pastor, was running the game made it a blast. The fact that Jesus is the one preparing the place where we'll be for all of eternity, I don't need to know the details. All I'm interested in is the fact that he's there and that he is the one preparing the place. And, and brothers and sisters, he will come back for us one day in the same manner in which he ascended. That was the promise of the angels, right? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. He's coming back for us, folks. He's coming back for us. And I know you'll be hearing more about that next week. I don't want to steal uh, Brother Matt's thunder here, but Jesus is coming back for us. So you say, Brother Mike, I know Jesus. I'm looking forward to that. It's been encouraging truths today from God's word that Jesus is coming back for me. But maybe you're here today and you say, I don't know Jesus. I'm hearing about him maybe for the first time. Maybe I've never really heard some of the details of Jesus before. I know I'm supposed to be on his side, but I really don't know much about him. What should I do? If you've got that question ringing in your heart right now, let me just give you some advice from the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3. This is the last verse. We'll throw this up on the screen. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. The Apostle Peter, speaking of Jesus' ascension, what should you do? Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, repent and turn to him today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. 
We thank you for exalting your son, Jesus Christ, to be ruler and to be savior. We're comforted by these truths. We're encouraged by these truths. We're motivated by these truths. And I do pray, Lord, that if there is an individual here today who does not know you, that they would bow their knee before you today, submit their life to you, and receive you as their savior, as one who can forgive them of all their sins. Lord, we praise you and thank you today. Thank you for your precious word and thank you for Jesus Christ who ascended and has been exalted in glory at the right hand of God. Amen. That was rich. Um.